you know, a lot of the streaming platforms, as we know, they are tech companies. And the technology, as we all can attest, is kind of amazing, right? But they, they have a different value proposition than a lot of independent filmmakers who are led by both their vision and their values. Welcome to the Thousand Roads podcast, where we talk about documentary, film, and journalism with the folks who do one or the other or both or however they choose to define what they do, which can be complicated. My guest this time around is Carrie Lozano, who's done so many things in the doc biz, I can only begin to name them. Until not long ago, she headed the Sundance Institute's documentary, film, and artists programs. Before that, she designed and directed the International Documentary Association's Enterprise Fund, which is how I met her. Prior to that, she was a senior producer at Al Jazeera America on the award-winning investigative doc series Fault Lines. I could go on and on, but we'll link to her bio in the show notes and you can read the rest. Her main gig right now is heading up ITBS, the independent television service, which, among other things, funds and distributes public TV docs and brings us the long-running, much-decorated PBS series Independent Lens. That, plus all of her experience, puts her smack dab in the middle of a lot of the conversations going on in the documentary world about cinema, about journalism, and about the role of both in a democracy. And that's about all you need to know. Carrie Lozano, always good to connect with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. I've been having lots of conversations as part of this podcast series about documentary film and its relationship to journalism. And we'll get to some of that, but I want to broaden that out uh, with you in particular and talk about documentary film in relationship to democracy. You've had several perches now in the business at the International Documentary Association, at the Sundance Institute, now at ITBS, where you seem to me like the perfect person to talk about this with the state of the doc world and how that does relate to democracy. Let's just start with the state of the doc world. How, how would you describe it right now? Well, it's probably no surprise to you. It's a tough time. And it's a tough time for a number of reasons. And if you were looking hard enough, I think you could have seen it coming. But there was, as we know, this really exciting period of a lot of uh, nonfiction content being produced. It opened a lot of doors for a lot of people, brought in big audiences, which was super exciting. But from my perspective, it did a really important thing was it, it provided a lot of work. So even if it wasn't your independent project or your, you know, your passion project, um, it still meant you can make a sustainable living for a lot of people. And so now, you know, as we all know, the um, platforms are consolidating, they're changing their business models, they're pulling back. And in the last six months, it felt like, um, it, and maybe this is just because of our lens, but it really felt like nonfiction was kind of the first to go, even at places that were really surprising. It was really surprising to many of us um, when the CNN documentary unit was shut down. That had been a really important, um, critical source of a certain type of filmmaking. And they had done some very distinguished work. Uh, well, at the same I mean, they, they shut down the unit and then they were nominated for an Oscar, right, with Navalny and, and won an Oscar with Navalny. So all of those forces, you know, that were happening across the board, um, both in the broadcast world and in the platform world, um, puts us in a really tough spot where films are not finding homes this year, films coming out of Sundance. Um, the distribution opportunities seem very murky. And I feel like this is where public media actually comes in because 
we're not in that position. Um, public media and ITVS have long been committed to independent documentary film, and we still are. Um, and and that hasn't gone anywhere, and it's not going anywhere. And so independent lens and POV and all of the strands that show a nonfiction at PBS, you know, we are still committed to this work, and nothing has changed for us. But for the field and for our producers, this contraction is, is significant and it has an impact across the board, you know, in all the work that we do. And and, and we're seeing that the, the question of sustainability is front and center for these artists who aren't sure how they're, how they're going to make a living. One of the ways this is figured uh, very peripherally in my own life is that one of my favorite films of last year was Reed Davenport's film, I Didn't See You There. Reed is a great director, spends a good deal of his life in a wheelchair and actually shot the entire film from his wheelchair. And it's just a terrific meditation on what it's like to live the way Reed lives. And it's got a beautiful, very sparse soundtrack, amazing visuals. I have told everyone I know to see it. When I tell them to see it, they say, where can I see it? And I look it up and it's not streaming. So that I did not know. I feel the same about Reed's film. Um, it was, you know, supported by the Sundance Institute and is from an artistic perspective and a craft perspective is a, a really, really special film. I mean, that's an issue that actually we as ITVS, we want to come to the table and figure out, you know, how to solve that problem. And that's a, that's a longer tale of, you know, the work that needs to be done. PBS has a platform, a streaming platform called Passport. If you're a member of your local station, you have access to Passport. A lot of the indies, you know, are accessible there. And as you know, a lot of these things, and this has always been the case, it's always been a case-by-case basis about how do you distribute your film? What is your plan? Where are you going? You know, what rights do you retain? And so this is not a new conundrum for filmmakers, but it's certainly more complicated. And and there's a lot more decision-making to be made and, you know, the carve up of those rights is is more complex than it ever was. There are far more rights now. <laughs> Remember, our pie used to be international, educational, broadcast, theatrical, right? It right. was kind of like right. that. And now, you know, I learned about all the VODs in the last few days, and there are plenty. VODs being video on demand. Yeah. And there's, you know, tons of different kinds. And and this is the work of the indies is, is to understand their rights and what those plans are and what that looks like. So... I, you know, I have hope that that I didn't see you there will end up somewhere. It's it's definitely not too late for that. I am an old timer. And for me, the contraction of recent times is not such a shock. And what was a shock was the expansion. For young filmmakers, I can understand, and I've talked to some, and many are uh, despairing. I don't know if that's too strong a word, but they feel really bad right now. And for me, what is uh, peculiar and different is not that it's hard to get work and hard to find an audience. It's that there was a time when there was an audience and it was reasonably easy to get work. As you say, maybe not the exact work you wanted, maybe nobody was funding your passion project, but there was a lot of really good movies being made. And if you were in the business and, and good at your job, you could play a part in those. Which American documentary scene do you think is the more real, the, the old person one that I'm describing or, or the recent one that people are lamenting? You know, it's like they're both real, right? Those are the, those are the circumstances. 
I mean, it's super fascinating, right? And and we've been talking about this a lot at ITVS and with the filmmakers that we work with. You know, a lot of the streaming platforms, as we know, they are tech companies. You know, some of them um, started in Silicon Valley, and we know which ones those are, that they still have a Silicon Valley technology mindset. And the technology, as we all can attest, is kind of amazing, right? I mean, the fact that we can all watch these films in all of these different ways in a variety of platforms is pretty fascinating. But they, they have a different value proposition than a lot of independent filmmakers who are led by both their vision and their values and don't necessarily see their work in the same light as, say, big commercial entities, you know, who, who see them as, as um, products, you know, and understandably, this is not a critique. This is just the real deal. Well, this is the United States of America, where in every art form, be it music, literature, film, whatever, this tension has always existed. Exactly. And so I feel optimistic. This is a hard time. And I'm not pretending. I mean, I know very, very well how hard a time this is. And not just for the filmmakers, but for our um, institutions, you know, for for all forms of our cultural scene, right? Look what's happening to theaters. I mean, big theaters shutting down in Los Angeles. And I'm not talking cinema, I'm talking theaters on Broadway, you know, all, all of the things that are happening. I mean, we are in yeah. we are in a tough moment and why wouldn't we be? We shut down the country for an entire year um, and we're going to be dealing with the impacts of that. And of course, during that time, we were all captive audiences. You know, Zoom was going through the roof. We were all watching all the time, you know, subscribing to everything under the moon. And now, you know, many of us want to get back into being in community and into the real world. And so they're retracting. I mean, it's just a moment that's settling. I actually don't think this is this is a hard time, but I don't think this is a terrible thing because like so many things that, that happened in Silicon Valley, things were out of whack. And what I hope is now that there's a correction, right, that there will be a correction that I hope will actually benefit filmmakers in the long run by giving them a little bit more negotiating power to really hang on to those rights, which is why I feel like ITVS is such an important value proposition, because when you work with ITVS, you retain creative control. And you retain the rights to your film. Yes, you're you're giving us your broadcast license, your you know the PBS license, and and we hope more and more streaming opportunities will come with us. But you know you retain the the ownership of your film in the long run. And I feel like that's not something that we did a great job as a field of educating filmmakers about and really talking about in an honest way. Um, you know, what does it mean when you sell all of your rights to um, a social justice film that's really important to you and then it gets taken off the catalog and there's nothing you can do about it? I mean, that's a big, important question, you know, to have. And ITVS, for listeners who don't know, is behind the great PBS series Independent Lens. PBS viewers are also uh, blessed, I would say, with two other series, POV and Frontline. And the three of them provide some very not just great films, but I would say nourishing films every year. And yet, could public media be doing so much more in the independent doc space when you think of all the diverse voices that need to be heard and all the talent out there? Sure. I mean, there's, I, you know, everyone can be doing more, I think, probably including us. And, and you know, as I like to say, all it takes is more resources so well, anybody let's, who's well, let's, listening and who wants to give us more, <laughs> let's let's <laughs> talk do. about that. Let's talk about that. Where might those resources 
come from, and why would anyone provide those resources? Well, a couple things, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit to also say, you know, there's other opportunities on public media too. There's, you know, the World Channel and America Reframed. And so I think there's, you know, a strong recognition of the importance of the the Indies to our culture, to democracy. And maybe I never even answered the democracy question. <laughs> um, Let's talk about money first, and then we'll talk yeah, about democracy. But, you know, I mean, I think... Um, Budgets have gotten bigger. You know this, you know, over the last few years, that was also in part, you know, an impact of the big kind of commercial side coming in in a big way. The cost of business is just more. That's true for every single business. So we're not excluded from that. And, you know, people want to make a living. What a shock. And so, you know, budgets are becoming more real and, and they're getting larger. And so, you know, we need help to sustain that. I mean, if we had a big investment, we could give that, pass that on to to our co-production uh, teams. And that would be an amazing thing. And, you know, would that come with asking for some more rights? That would be a really amazing thing, too. Um, and so there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity to experiment. I mean, that's why I'm excited to be here. For me personally, it's not an accident that I'm at ITVS. It, it's, it's an opportunity. It's a moment. And we don't know what's going to happen next or what kind of innovations will occur. I, I have to imagine that really smart people, um, including many of the people that I work with, we're all thinking about this issue. And um, there will be some big ideas and some good things that happen and some things that work and some things that don't. But this is the time to experiment because we can. Um, and I think artists will be able to come to the table with a little bit more flexibility and say, wait a minute, th this this model, we can't count on that previous model. So what can we count on? And, and, you know, how should we be pursuing this work? Where would or could the additional funding come from? And what would be the pitch to those in a position to provide it? It's a really good question. I mean, you know, we in our space in, in the documentary field have relied on philanthropy for a really long time. And data shows that philanthropy is still one of the most essential revenue sources to, to you know, not only produce this work, but to distribute the work. One of the things that I felt even at Sundance was that a lot of philanthropists, and this is the big institutions, and this is also individual donors, they're really, really generous and happy to come in on the production development side. What happens when you get to distribution? Where's the money for that? And we know that to get audience, that takes marketing and that the more you spend in marketing, the bigger an audience you'll find. It's, you know, this is this is some math that is tried and true. And so it was kind of a long, a long dream of mine to, to start a, a distribution fund, actually. And of course, the pandemic had other other ideas in mind. And, and we spent money in other ways and definitely had a lot of support. But I do think that there's still a value proposition, which is that this work is essential to a thriving democracy. You know, as the media companies consolidate and as media, and this is both journalistic, this is both entertainment, you know, is really controlled by the hands of very, very few companies, the indies are critical. We have to hear these voices and the perspectives um, we have to understand what is happening in the world, and they play a big role in creating that record. And in a lot of ways, because um, the field is so driven by values and social justice, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the business of our field and the business. What we're basically saying is that business has changed. But 
what is exciting and what I really you know, do want to hit home about ITVS, about public media, is that the business is not the value proposition. The reach is the value proposition. And the support of indies is the ITVS congressional mandate is to support independent voices, diverse voices, storytelling that takes risks and, and both creative and in content. And so we're fortunate to be in a position where it's not about the bottom line, but it's about something else that I think filmmakers actually really care about. Well, I think that allows us to transition to the subject of democracy, which in the best of all American worlds is also not about the bottom line. Right. What is the role that independent film plays in our democracy, in your view? You know, I think it's one of the key pillars, and I think it takes it takes all of us to have a thriving democracy. But the independents, as you know, because they're driven really by one motivation, which is to tell a story, an important story, or something that they see as important and that they understand, uh, they're able to shed light on issues, on circumstances, on experiences, on um, the state of the human condition that in a lot of ways is really, really hard, but is also a privilege because they can take the time to get to know a subject or a person or a community or a set of circumstances that, you know, the media most of the time is unable to do. So they play a really important part in helping us understand the world that we live in and the circumstances in which our fellow you know, citizens find themselves. Um, and those that takes all shapes and forms. And I think independent film is also, you know, about culture and shifting culture. And we know that visual media is incredibly powerful. And there's lots of social science research of which I'm not necessarily an expert on all of that. But there's, you know, there's a lot of research on the power of story, and in particular, the power of visual media, which is why everybody wants to do it. You know, every company, um, every organization, you know, everyone um, will get in touch and say, oh, I want to make a documentary about the thing that is most important to me. And that's because it's powerful. And so, you know, is that changing right now, too, with all the different ways that um, visual media touches our lives? Sure, absolutely. That said, um, there's still a lot of evidence that the long form storytelling is really, really meaningful in different ways to different communities. And so to me, if we lose that, we, we actually lose a significant source of understanding um, the world that we live in. I mean, that's what documentary filmmakers do. And they do it in the kind of like small political sense and in the capital P political sense, you know, the small D and the large D. So I see it as essential. And they are not driven by the commercial concerns that we're talking about. They're not driven by the bottom line. They're not um, working for a set of editors. They're not working for a publicly traded company. I mean, that is the idea of independence is having creative control. So, you know, without fear or favor, telling your story, that's that's what it's about. You know, confining this for, for the purpose of this conversation to the United States, we're not a country that has funded the arts traditionally to any great degree, like some European countries, for example, have. Do you see a place or a time or a possibility where there might be more government funding for independent documentary film because government recognizes, government being we the people, recognizes that there is a role to be played in our democracy by these independent voices who are bringing us stories, in many cases, we would not otherwise hear. So you're right. Um, the United States has not invested as heavily in the arts as other countries. We know that. 
And there have been times and ebbs and flows. I'm hopeful that that could happen. But, you know, the jury is out a little bit. But, you know, one of the things that we were able to do, that Sundance was able to do, Firelight was able to do is... Stanley Nelson and Marcia Smith's company. Exactly. We all were recipients of an, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Act, which was a sustainability grant. And each of those organizations was able to fund um, the livelihood of a large number of filmmakers for an entire year. It was unrestricted funding for humanities-based storytellers, and they got a monthly stipend, you know, to kind of get through this last year. And that was a one-time deal, part of the American Rescue Act, but it was really special and really important uh, because it was kind of a signal and an understanding that this work matters. So that is, in some ways, Tom, I feel like that's my work ahead to be an ambassador um, for these storytellers to really help um, our legislators and others um, even more keenly understand what this work means to their communities and why we should invest in this work and continue to support it. So that's the hope. But, you know, it's it's I think it's going to take an organized effort because it's not really just about us as indies. You know, it is about our cultural ecosystem, fine artists, narrative artists, you know, music artists, you know, all of the above. I mean, we really should be working together to make our case. It seems that there is a chicken and egg aspect to all of this, that demonstrating that there are larger audiences is probably a way to get more funding but you need more funding to get larger audiences. I mean, one of the things I've noticed over the course of my career, which is over four decades now, is how much more entertaining documentaries are. Filmmakers have really found ways to make documentaries more engaging to audiences. Not that there weren't engaging documentaries 40 years ago, but I would say they were fewer and far between. A well-known sound person who I worked with back in the 80s uh, who worked on many films, once said to me, these films are a lot more fun to make than they are to watch. And I think that may have been true way back in the day. I think they are now many times fun to watch as well. But again, how do you get that word out if there's no money to promote the films, to bring in the audience, to show the potential funder that, hey, people are digging this and they want more of it? I mean, that's the work and that's the work ahead. And in some ways, there's the big ask, the big organizational you know, pursuit of this. And then there is some onus on the indies individually. And that comes you know, to them really thinking about their audience and what they want to do with their films. I mean, I think you know, the other thing that can be said of of films, you know, 30 or 40 years ago is that you kind of knew the path, the path of of getting a film out and distribute, you know, rolling it out. You you knew everything happened in a certain sequence. It was kind of pretty clear. and, And you just did the things and you checked the boxes and you got the film out and then you moved on to your next project. I think we have to work harder now to think about what we're trying to do with the film. Who who do we want to see it? And then how do we get there? And there are so is that on a is that on a film by film basis, Carrie? I think it is. Yeah, because that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of resources. But there's a part of me that feels like why shouldn't it be a lot of work? You know, you invest several years of your life into telling these stories, and then I think you have to build in 
a back end of how you're going to reach the audiences that matter most to you. And I do think we have to, you know, we have to ask ourselves that question. And there's a lot more ways to reach people now. Um, there are a lot of possibilities. And unfortunately, we have an extra hat we're going to have to wear, I think, um, in the coming years. There are already so many hats a documentary filmmaker wears. There's so many hats. But who's who's been in a position to wear all those hats, though? And to be innovative and to do really creative and interesting things than the indies, you know? And who's more used to wearing all those hats? That's right. That's right. And I want to note for listeners that you got a big smile on your face when I quoted <laughs> that when I quoted that sound person. <laughs> I, I'm going to take that as a sign of a certain amount of acknowledgement. It's true. But, you know, I, I recently, because of um, the Oppenheimer moment and because um, John Ells, as he knows, is my guru, as he is to many, to many of us, I rewatched Day After Trinity a couple weeks ago. I've seen it many times. But, you know. Let's stop right there. For listeners who don't know, for the likes of us, John is John Else is a legend in our business. Uh, his film, The Day After Trinity, which came out in 1980 or 81, I believe, is about Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb. So all of a sudden, I'm so glad that it's back in play again. Uh, terrific film. Uh, and John has been a great, uh, you call him your guru. I think he's been a lot of people's gurus, a lot of people's mentors. John uh, shot a film I directed back in the 90s about a group of men in drug and alcohol recovery. And he had that tremendous documentarian's ability to kneel down with his camera, encircled by people speaking their deepest feelings, and just disappearing into the room so that they could talk and he could record. I mean, he really is an extraordinary filmmaker, an extraordinary person. So I just wanted to lay that out for our listeners who don't know John or that film. Now, please tell me about watching The Day After Trinity again. You know, it's it's a film that is based on interviews with people who were there at Los Alamos, right, in the building of the bomb before it was set off in Japan. So these were the people who were still alive. Robert Oppenheimer at the time was not still alive. The people who were there firsthand or, or who knew Oppenheimer, those people are gone now, right? So that was, um, and, and John talks about this often and eloquently about our job as historians, as creating those records, as archivists. You can go and see the fiction film, but if you want to hear firsthand from the people who were there and who lived it, there's Day After Trinity. And what's amazing about it, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say, is just, I love the setup and I love the interviews because on the one hand, he's he's getting the history, you know, straight firsthand from, from eyewitnesses, but he's also getting into the moral quandary of it all in a kind of sly way. You know, it's not, it's not didactic. It's not hitting you over the head like, you know, Tom, you know, how do you feel about setting off the atomic bomb, right? That's that's the news version. But like, but the documentary version, it's a human inquiry about the greatest question, which is, you know, how we as humans make ethical decisions and the consequences of things that we get excited about, but have unintended consequences. I completely agree with you about uh, how sneaky that film is in the way it slowly builds to the moral question. It starts out just talking to people who were there. And then by the end, and by the end, there's stock footage of Oppenheimer himself. After You finally hear from Oppenheimer only after the bomb has dropped. And you see, I mean, I may be reading my own thing into it, but you see the effect this has had on this man and these tens of thousands of deaths. And it's just a very powerful 
an eloquent film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's the, you know, as John would say, it's the real deal. In its own way, I think it's also journalism. It's absolutely journalism. And I think the idea that 41 years later, I think it is, or 42 years later, um, that we're talking about it and that it has relevance and meaning to us and that there's something to learn from it and to take away from it, that's documentary film. I mean, you know, that is part of that democratic story. I'm a news junkie. You know I've worked in newsrooms. I'm an investigative reporter. But I will be hard-pressed for anyone to look at um, one of, you know, one of the news stories I worked on, um, you know, 40 years from now, you know, maybe in an archival capacity, but to actually sit down and engage with it, that's the power of documentary film. From your perch now at ITBS, do you feel like the films you program need to be, quote, journalistic? And what does that even mean to you? This is a conversation, as you know, that our field has been having for a really long time. Uh, you know, I think filmmakers are more open to the idea of um, that they are, in a matter of speaking, journalists. Um, but as I like to say, in all complex questions, my response is usually, it depends. So you mentioned, I didn't see you there. Is that a piece of journalism? It's a it's a personal perspective and experience, um, you know, Reed's personal experience of really traversing the terrain of the Bay Area, specifically um, in his wheelchair. And, you know, there are some facts in the film, uh, but they're few and far between other than what is his point of view. So it depends. But I do think a couple of things. You know, journalists have, as you know, legal rights in this country that don't necessarily extend to artists in, in an obvious way. So yes, there's freedom of expression and freedom of speech that's protected. But when it comes to case law and the way that you actually engage in the world, there are laws. There's, there's laws about recording. There's laws about recording this conversation. Um, you know, a lot of filmmakers don't know that you can't just record a conversation because you want to, that in a lot of states you have to have consent, no matter where you are. So there are there are things journalistically that are there um, either in case law or in, you know, actual regulatory law that are important and are about journalism. And then there's, you know, there are works, as you and I both know, that are journalistic and they range from artistic approach to things that are are more current affairs approaches but but nonetheless they are pieces of journalism so it is you know that idea of journalism in the independent space is a real range all of that said public media has standards and practices they are now published online you, anybody can go and look and see what they are and filmmakers can engage with them and those standards and practices are really important because those are about public trust and, you know, public media remains one of the most trusted resources in the country across demographics. And in part, that's because there are standards and practices about the way we, we tell our stories, the way we engage with the people in our stories, and also the way we engage with funders and so that viewers and individuals who engage with public media, they understand um, what's underneath it, that, that there are um, boundaries and limitations to the way all of us do our work, and that's from journalists all the way through to the independents. And, you know, many of us call this the contract with the audience. And 
And so the audience knows that, that these films and this content has been vetted and thus they trust it. And that's a critical thing. One of my themes during this podcast, this won't be the first time I've brought it up in conversation, has been the fact that there are journalists who look at documentary film at kind of, uh, scornfully is too strong a word, but they look down on it because it's not journalism and it doesn't adhere to the, the, what they believe the standards and ethics of journalism are. There are documentary filmmakers who wouldn't be caught dead being called journalists because they are artists and the artistry is not there. Now, in real fact, there's a lot of journalists who are very artistically adept, and there are a lot of documentary filmmakers who are very journalistically adept, and how they identify doesn't necessarily reflect what they're actually doing, at least to me as a, as a consumer of their work. I find this conversation something that I am trying to combat in this podcast series. Don't put people in boxes. Don't say a film has to be this to be a good film. Look at a good film and ask yourself, how did they make it? That's right. And if you arrive at different questions, because there were different sets of ethics, some people pay their subjects, some people would never pay their subjects. Some people, as you know, more often in recent years, will sometimes make their documentary subjects or participants, as they are more likely known these days, producers in their own story. Some people from a traditional journalism background would never do that seems to me there's all kinds of ways to make a good film nowadays. I think that's right. And I think, you know, and and um, this is something that I've been thinking about, as you know, and talking about a lot over the years. I think it's about transparency. You know, does the audience understand the relationship, whatever that relationship is? You know, are you being honest with your audience about how you approach the film and the filmmaking? And of course, you know, these films have huge ranges in subject matter. So, you know, there are times where a filmmaker might say, well, I'm not a journalist and I don't want to be considered one. But then you look at the content and it's like, well, this this actually requires, it demands journalism, it demands fact-checking, it demands some standards that might go, you know, more in the journalistic realm. And, you know, you can't, it's, you can't always just get away with it. It's like there is a level of responsibility that we all have. And that level of responsibility is what filmmakers are responding to, too, about you know, when you enter a community and you ask for a year or two of someone's life, you know, what is your responsibility to them? And I think that's an absolutely great question. And it's different in every scenario. And that's where it becomes difficult to codify in documentary filmmaking, because every maker is different. Every story is different. Every community is different. It's really hard to have a one size fits all set of practices that is going to work for everyone. And I think it's actually really fortunate that filmmakers who work with us have some standards and practices that actually can help them navigate their relationships with their um, participants. Because as we know, those conversations can get really difficult and really challenging and can start to impact the production, actually. This brings me to a film that you have mentioned as one of your favorites that I had never seen before until you did, which I just watched, and that is The Devil Never Sleeps by Lourdes Portillo. So that's a film, and again, we'll put something about it in the show notes, about a woman who goes who goes to Mexico after the mysterious death of her uncle and uh, attempts to learn what happened to him and finds out there are all these different versions of what may or may not have happened to him. And um, I was searching around about it. I actually wrote down a quote 
Richard Brody of The New Yorker wrote about this film a couple of years ago because there was a screening of it. And he writes of Lourdes Portillo, she overrides any presumed division between the journalistic and the aesthetic realms, composing the film with a visual and dramatic imagination that's as crucial to the viewing experience right. as the information she uncovers. That's right. I felt like that could be a sentence about what makes a documentary film a great one. Well, that's right. And I think that's, I mean, that's the beauty of it. And that's why you don't want to confine it or categorize it because we as storytellers have so many possibilities at our fingertips of how we decide to tell a story. And that's especially true if you are an independent. You know, there are certainly formulaic nonfiction works out there. And, you know, we know what those are and what they look like. But the idea of having a creative vision and being able to have all of these devices, all of the possibilities at your fingertips to tell a compelling story is pretty exceptional. And, you know, and that's that is what makes all of this so powerful and I think so long lasting so that you know, every time you watch The Devil Never Sleeps, you're going to see something else that you didn't see before. Every time you watch Day After Trinity, you know, you're going to hear a different quote or you're going to see a different expression on someone's face. I mean, you know, you're going to notice the music. You might notice um, a recreation or you might wonder, you know. So it's it's so rich with possibility. And that's what makes it so exciting. Well, where uh, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I'll put you on the spot. Where are we going? Where are we headed? Who's the we? The documentary community. And, and by that, I mean the makers and the audience. The makers and the audience. Well, I hope where the makers are going is that we come together. We are exceptionally good also at coming together and asking the hard questions. And I, and I think we do that better um, than a lot of other fields at looking at the way we work and kind of interrogating it and asking and wanting to do better. Do we always hit the mark? Probably not. But that value of always wanting to do better is, I think, really, really unique to us. And I love that. So, you know, we want ourselves to do better. But I think the moment right now is to come together and say, we want all of you who benefit from our work to also do better. You know, we want you to help us get these films out. We want you to help us be sustainable. We want you to help us reach audiences who don't necessarily have, um, you know, 10 subscriptions to all of these different platforms. And so I think, I hope this is a moment, and I hope that um, ITVS plays a role in this, of bringing, bringing all of the stakeholders together um, to really think about how we're going to move our field forward. And in fact, you know, ITVS is a result of that kind of action and that kind of organizing. Um, there's a lot of lore and legend out there, but it really was a group of filmmakers who came together and said, you know, we need more voices in public media. We need more diverse voices in public media. And ITVS was created as a congressional mandate. And diversity is our mandate and creativity is our mandate and taking risks is our mandate. And we still remain um, a real pillar in ensuring that there are diverse voices and perspectives out in the world. We, we do that better than than anybody else. And that's not something we will ever retract from because it's in our articles of incorporation. That's our mission. That's what we do. So that's where I hope the field goes. In terms of audiences, I mean, the truth is, is audiences are doing what they're doing and we have to understand them. And I got a great education from some of our um, colleagues at PBS who do this work and who look at this and, and at some other organizations who think about audience. And 
you know, the reality is audiences are engaging in a whole lot of technology. Technology is just technology. We are the humans who use it. But those different technologies engage with different audiences. So we find that if we have something on YouTube, that's a younger audience. Wow. Shocking, right? So, you know, so I think it's it's our work to really understand, well, where are audiences going? How are they engaging? And, and is there a way for us to be a part of that within the public media system? And that's the work ahead. But the audiences are out there. And I think I am grateful to the platforms for showing us that actually wide audiences do care about nonfiction. They care about creative nonfiction and, and, you know, they are there for it. And so now it's our work to reach them. And I like ending on an up note like that, especially in these dire times for documentaries. Carrie Lozano, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode of the Thousand Roads Podcast. Thanks, as always, to my colleague Pallavi Deshpande and to composer Ben Cuomo. There are plenty of other conversations like this one to listen to about documentary film, journalism, and more. Please check them out.